One mother, one mission. To create a world where families thrive. Dr. Anne Shalfand, internationally acclaimed clinical psychologist, family therapist, author and mother of four children, brings you powerful and practical parenting techniques from her clinical and personal experience. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in the house. Welcome to the Annie Centre podcast. My name is Dr. Anne Shalfont, and today we're talking about Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. This morning I interviewed Professor Michael Cohn on this topic. He is considered one of Australia's leading experts on ADHD. So I'm really excited to be able to share that interview with you today. Before I get to that, though, I just want to give this brief introduction to the issue of ADHD. Why are we even talking about it? Well, in my mind, there's three reasons why it's important to focus on ADHD. First, it's the most commonly diagnosed childhood disorder. Did you know that about 7% of four to nine-year-old children have ADHD and almost 10% of 10 to 14-year-olds are diagnosed with ADHD? They're large numbers. Did you know that the social and economic costs last year of ADHD in Australia was $20.42 billion? Now that's a grim statistic. And that included financial costs of $12.83 billion, well-being losses of $7.59 billion, and $10.19 billion in productivity losses. I'm talking about B for billion. Again, these are staggering figures. So the second reason is this issue of the social and economic costs. In our schools, for example, one quarter of the students who actually have ADHD have been suspended for behaviour difficulties associated with their disability. And 40% of those suspensions are occurring in the first three years that a child is in primary school. So yes, 40% of those individuals who are suspended who have ADHD are in years as young as kindergarten. I can't believe that we are suspending children from kindergarten due to behaviour difficulties associated with a disability. I think that's a shocking statistic. The third reason is the amount of negative press that ADHD seems to attract. Whether it's arguments over overdiagnosis or underdiagnosis, whether it's debates around whether or not we should be medicating children, whether it's discussions in society or in the media about whether ADHD has become a convenient diagnosis for what really is just naughty behaviour or a convenient excuse for adults for what really is just misconduct or bad conduct. ADHD certainly seems to have become the disorder that we love to hate and we have ignored it. It's no longer recognised as a disability within the education system because it attracts no funding in terms of education support. In the NDIA or the National Disability Insurance Agency in Australia, it gets no recognition. There's no funded support for ADHD through the NDIA or its scheme, the NDIS. In our Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme or PBS, medication for ADHD for adults is also ignored. So how is it that we're in this situation where a disorder that people genuinely have, where they really need support, 
a disorder that is costing the community so much money per year is being ignored in this way. And it's for this reason that I wanted to speak to Professor Michael Cohn on this topic. A little about Professor Cohn. He's a clinical professor and paediatrician with a special interest in treatment outcome research in developmental disorders, neuroscience and nutritional disorders. Professor Cohn is Area Director of Adolescent and Young Adult Services in Western Sydney, and he's the founding director of the Centre for Research into Adolescence Health, or CRASH, C-R-A-S-H. He developed a clinical research program there in developmental paediatrics and neuroscience. Dr. Cohn has published over 140 peer-reviewed scientific articles and 10 book chapters. He is a committee member of the NHMRC, which is the National Health and Medical Research Council ADHD Treatment Guidelines, and he is a reviewer for a range of scientific journals, industry and the NHMRC. Dr. Cohn has been chair of ADHD Australia since 2015. So as I said, he is an expert in this area, and it was a great honour to interview him today. So let's listen to that interview now and see what kind of information he can share with us about ADHD and how we can shine a light on this topic. So Dr. Cohn, thank you for agreeing to share some insights on ADHD this morning. Now, I feel like it's, it's one of those really important neurodevelopmental disorders, not just because the prevalence is so high, but it seems to be so you know, despite our, our modern understanding and great research and, and building of awareness within the clinical and the health professional world, very much um, understood and overlooked in some ways. And so I wanted to um, speak with you this morning, I suppose, given your expertise and, and your, your length of time working in this field. Um, so, Michael, where do you think we're at, first of all, in understanding what exactly might and might not cause ADHD? I think we're in a watershed moment, uh, Annie. Mm -hmm. I think uh, where we've come from is that we've had uh, classic descriptions of behaviour mm -hmm. and that's been really um, confusing in, in, in some ways because um, the, the cause for the behaviour has had um, some contention but also it's been ascribed to, to different kind of uh, reasons like bad parenting, a bad person, yes. um, you know, a dumb person. So yes. there's been hugely negative connotations in terms of where we've been, how we've tried to uh, categorise, how we've tried to describe uh, a group of people whose brain are not efficiently solving challenges. Mm. Um, and now what we've got is a neuroscience um, that is telling us how the brain of an individual person is working to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, we are really able to see the differences and we're able to understand that there is a biology, um, not just a society responsible for ADHD. Yes, okay. And so in terms of um, looking at the biology, what do we think at the moment? What's the thinking around what some of the causal factors might be? So what, what underlies the biology is, is less clear. We've just, at the moment, got like a macro view. We've just got the ability to see how someone with ADHD, how their organ, their brain, 
works differently to solve yes. problems and that this difference means that they're less efficient in some areas, in the okay. areas of organisation and planning. And it may also mean that they're less efficient in processing skills that are so important, such as language. Uh -huh. So in, in terms of assessment, then I suppose moving on from that or, or jumping ahead to that a little bit, you know, we, as a clinical psychologist, we would use, you know, rating scales, we'd interview parents, we'd interview school teachers, we'd look for presence of those difficulties or challenges across different settings in order to be thorough. From what you're saying, is there more need to be doing more in terms of neuroimaging and those sorts of studies to be more clear about diagnosis so that there's less murkiness around, you know, misdiagnosis or possibly overdiagnosis? What do you think? Uh, Annie, I think that there's, there's two important issues to distinguish from what you've just said. Hmm. First is the ability to make a diagnosis. Hmm. But making a diagnosis doesn't actually help a person. Yes. Necessarily. So I think part of the diagnostic process has to understand why the inefficiency is there, why the ADHDness is there. Yes. And if we can package that, then we can tailor for the individual how best to give them support. Uh -huh. So I think the subjective rating of behaviour, those scales that you were mentioning, they're really good to categorise someone, mm. but we need to go further, uh, and I think we can at the moment, to best assist them to manage their ADHDness. Sure, and so things like looking at their functioning and, and planning for support and, and treatment around that. Michael, what is the um, current prevalence? I, I presume it, it differs depending on age groups or clusters. So, so this is again a, a really uh, interesting observation if you step back. Yes. So we know that in terms of the brain, um, there is a, there's groupings, uh, five to 10% of people whose brains naturally across our population will function in a deviant, in a not the, the majority way. Uh -huh. And to give an example, let's look at left-handedness. Yes. Consistently across generations, there's been the way that someone's brain has worked to motor, their, operationalize their motor system that is predominantly left-handed, that five to 10% group. But the vast majority are right-handed. Yes. And um, I think in terms of how a person's brain develops, in terms of the development of cognitive skills, the efficiency to solve uh, challenges, um, not just in the classroom, but in the playground. So in a whole way that the brain operates, there's five to 10% of the population who are less efficient Mm. And um, that is the group that we are clearly identifying as having ADHD. And again, the rule for them is it's not just that they've got the ADHDness. The vast majority of people where we see this ADHDness, they've got other kinds of co-occurring inefficiencies. And as I said, um, it could be regulating your mood or it could be using language. There's a range of ways in which the brain is operating inefficiently, which is yes. hallmark. By having ADHD. Yes, yes, and then the subsequent, I suppose, challenges that that we see, as you said, difficulties with uh, with language and and with mood regulation in a classroom environment, um, the huge challenge that that poses. And and I I know that the numbers in terms of cost, um, not just the f financial cost, but looking at children who are suspended from school or move schools. Um, because they're not being, I suppose, adequately supported within certain environments and the difficulties that poses for those that may have associated learning difficulties must be, must be huge. 
so so this is um, quite a political slant at the moment uh -huh. in view in how you view uh, ADHD because of the NDIS. Right. And I couldn't agree with you more, Eddie. What you've said is that people with ADHD have a disability in terms mm. of uh, competitiveness with their same age peers in education, in work, in, a, in relationships, in a range of ways, and that it is lifelong. And, and so uh, why isn't uh, support for the people that are in this group that have this uh, disability that's associated with having ADHD, why aren't they able to be supported? And so just on that, I suppose, looking historically, Michael, my understanding um, is that, you know, a long, long ago, <laughs> ADHD was a diagnosis that was given some, for example, some funding or some support or, you know, concrete resources allocated within, for instance, the education system, um, in the same way now that other neurodevelopmental disorders are like autism. And certainly, uh, you know, thinking about things like the NDIS, why, why do you think it is that, that it's, it's lost that um, recognition when, as, as, you, as you indicate, and, and I certainly see that myself, these are kids who um, are genuinely, you know, struggling, kids and adults are genuinely struggling and really need that support um, so that it doesn't cost further for them emotionally and personally, but also more broadly, if we're thinking about resources and allocation of scarce health resources for, for the country and for the economy. Why has, that, why has there been that shift over time? Yes, and, and again, agreeing with you wholeheartedly. Uh, the clinicians, the families, those people with ADHD, their view has not changed. Mm. So someone's view has changed uh, and they are the decision makers in terms of how the health system is managed. And I think they are the people that need to be accountable to explain why they made the change and why they continue to resist support uh, for young people um, and adults too um, in, in various ways with ADHD. Mm. Um, so, uh, and again, please, it, it isn't just the young people. Um, I'm mm. particularly concerned that ADHD is now well recognized to occur into adult life. Yes, yet yes. Subsidy for ADHD medications, one of the first line treatments for ADHD, is not available through the, our PBS, our system of subsidy for adults. Incredible. And that certainly needs to change. Oh, absolutely. That, that's that's mind blowing for me to hear that from you, um, Dr. Cohen. I, I had no idea that that was the case, and I can't imagine. You know, for, for individuals with depression or anxiety or things like that, I can't imagine them not being able to access, uh, you know, medication as a line of treatment that they would so need and, and why that would be so different for someone who has adult, uh, you know, ADHD. That, that is really mind-blowing. Um, what, what can we do then, do you think, as a society or, or as a culture or, or in, in certain aspects of how we're working to shed then more positive attention? on ADHD and, and raise the profile in such a way that the needs can be better understood and, and, and then perhaps better recognised? Yes, so I, I think again, if I could go back to my example of, of yes. left-handedness. Yes. Um, this was definitely something that was seen in our society, um, not even more than two generations ago, as something that had to be stamped out. Mm -hmm. So um, even the name, um, um, you know, that was given to, to left-handedness, uh, sinister and, and uh, being left and dexter, mm. dexterous being right. Mm -hmm. um, so 
in our society in a range of subtle and, and overt ways, um, we, we look to try and change left-handed people uh, mm -hmm. to become right-handed people. And now, fast forward to 2020, mm -hmm. we are really celebrating the diversity, but also uh, inclusiveness and, and taking advantage of left-handed people. Mm -hmm. And I can think of no better example than the selection of the Australian cricket team when we go mm -hmm. back to playing cricket. There'll be definitely uh, people who can bowl and bat left-handed who have advantages uh, mm. and are included uh, in our team. I think we need to get better at accommodating. We just need to recognise that people's brains aren't all created equal. Mm. In some areas where we've got, um, we select out for the classroom, we make it more difficult for ADHD people to thrive. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is to just to recognise it's just a difference we need to yes. accommodate it in areas where they're under stress, but equally well, what we need to do is to recognize it's not just a deficit having ADHD. Yes. There are some significant advantages in creativity, in entrepreneurship, in a whole range of ways. Our society really thrives because of the input from people who have ADHD. Mm. Um, looking at the tech industry, um, in, in Google, how the whole working environment has been restructured there to harness the energy and creativity from people with ADHD mm. and, and not to have this nine to five, this regimentation, um, which makes their uh, difficulties in, in coping in society uh, problematic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's a combination of, you know, hopefully a shift in our, in our view, but at the same time as more strengths-based approach as well, trying to harness people's strengths and, and seeing the the, the positives, as, as you put it, the creativity and the other um, strengths and capabilities of people with ADHD and harnessing those. Michael, if we look at um, a treatment, just to sort of turn our attention to that now, what is the evidence telling us at the moment about best practice treatment for ADHD? So, uh, again, the what's best for a person with uh, ADHD uh -huh. may not necessarily um, be what's uh, best for um, ADHD in, in general. Uh -huh. And I think um, it's important to recognise that there is a spectrum of inefficiency uh -huh. um, and there are definitely uh, strengths and difficulties for each individual person uh -huh. that are sort of a little magnified even. So I think a personalised approach uh -huh. uh, is definitely still the key where there's support around um, the not just the behaviors but some of the learning language or emotional regulation difficulties okay that that makes perfect sense so really looking at the individual profile of a, of a person with adhd and and designing treatment planning around their individual strengths and challenges as opposed to uh, saying, oh, well, you have ADHD, here's the general path for, for you of action, which I think you know, sounds very similar to um, what's historically perhaps been some of the pitfalls with other neurodevelopmental disorders. You know, for instance, autism, well, you have autism, do you know, X, Y, and Z, as opposed to looking at the individual's um, particular profile and planning around that. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. So if we take autism and we want to regulate the behaviours, um, we're missing the important opportunities, uh, some of the drivers for the acting out behaviour to improve socialisation and communication. Mm. So in, in, in ADHD, mm -hmm. um, what, 
seen in, in a number of large studies is that there's definitely the use for the psychosocial educational strategies mm -hmm. in combination with pharmacological strategies. Mm -hmm. And for ADHD, we've got a particular pharmacological uh, approach which is highly effective mm -hmm. in regulating the behaviours and overcoming a lot of the cognitive disability. Mm -hmm. And so those studies, such as the MTA study, getting on to be uh, about 20 years old now, mm -hmm. but not old, and what it clearly shows is that if you have, if you fit into that category of ADHD, you will benefit most by having uh, support around medication as part of your treatment, at mm. least in the early year or so. Mm. It's very interesting in terms of the timing of it. Sounds like that's very important. Yes, absolutely. There's, there's, it's, it is complex. It's, in that there's, it's multifactorial. And uh -huh. I think that's why uh, you need to have trained physicians doctors and, and psychology working together yes. uh, to be able to optimise the approach that yes. will someone with ADHD. Yes, and I think on that point, I, I, couldn't, um, I couldn't agree with you more. Do you think um, then that we need to um, tighten up in some way the psychosocial interventions that are available? I'm just thinking of sort of similar to other neuro, neuro, neurodevelopment disorders, it seems like um, every possible intervention known to mankind can be listed at different times. And I know uh, when we, several years ago when the NHMRC were looking at guidelines around ADHD, one of the concerns I believe that was raised was about just the variance of the psychosocial um, therapies and treatments. What's your thought, Michael, in terms of what, what you see as in the evidence, and I suppose anecdotally as being effective and, and perhaps less effective? So thank you, Annie. I, I have um, just two sort of um, ideas to, to mm. uh, answer your question. But the first to explain is that I was on that NHMRC committee yes. in 2011. And, and so I thought that that document at that time that the NHMRC produced, not just the recommendations, but looking at um, um, all the various kinds of ADHD treatments, and, and so a separate document from the NHMRC was looked at evidence base for, oh. for a range of um, yes. treatments as well as mainstream treatments. And, and so it, it's very clear um, that there isn't an evidence base to support them. Yes. However, I think, again, when we're looking at the individual, you need to ask yourself three questions. One, is this likely to help? Mm. Is this going to do my child or me harm? And mm. can I afford time and money? Mm. And I think, again, there isn't a mortgage on what is going to be helpful um, mm. by any profession, doctors, psychologists, anyone mm. else. Mm. So I think as a responsible parent, if you can answer those three questions, then it's worthwhile giving it a go. Uh, for your young person or, or for yourself. Mm. That's a great guideline, I think, for families that would be listening to this podcast. So, you know, the sense of, you know, is this likely to help my individual child and their specific circumstances? And you've talked about that idea of, of, of the individual profile of the, of the person. And then, you know, the, the cost in terms of time, your own personal time and resources. Um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great set of questions, I think, that families would really value. 
um, from listening to this. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Conan. And then can I just ask you about some of the digital therapies that seem to be coming out of, of the US specifically? So recently, my understanding is that the Food and Drug Authority in the States um, officially sort of recognised a digital therapy, particularly um, a game, um, as a as a you know something that could be prescribed for someone with ADHD. Um, mm -hmm. as a way of strengthening and targeting neural pathways. Is, is that something that you think might eventually occur here? Yes, look, it's, it's occurring um, ever since um, psychology and, uh, started to, to look at ADHD. Uh -huh. So what we're talking about now uh, is actually a form of brain training. Mm. And, and we know that the brain is the organ involved in ADHD. We know that the brain is plastic, in other words, that it is able to respond and change in function with experience. Mm -hmm. And so then it becomes, well, in this 2020 age, what kind of experiences can we uh, manufacture to train the brain mm -hmm. to perform in ways um, that we would see as being better, as, as optimal? Mm -hmm. And so the uh, digital brain training strategies are being developed um, at the rate of knots um, mm. There is an evidence base. There are ways in which companies developing them have piloted and have researched them, have produced data. Mm. Um, administrations such as the FDA have looked at it and found them convincing and found them helpful. So they've registered them. And I think they're going to continue to evolve um, as a new kid on the block for ADHD treatment. Yes. And hopefully, again, that's another um, good option then depending on the individual profile of, of the, you know, child or, or adolescent or adult uh, with, with, that, with that challenge. It's a challenge. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, that's right. The three questions apply. Um, but I think, again, if, if the, the dependency, the, the vulnerability uh, for preoccupation that someone with ADHD has for these uh, digital strategies yes. needs to be cautiously. It can be a help, but it can also be a distraction. And again, judgment and care needs to be made in deciding how you do that, to whom you might introduce these strategies. Yes, yes, okay. Um, going back to the education system, Dr. Cohn, what, what's your view on things that might need to shift in the education system to give better support to children at school with ADHD? Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by, um, and again, I think I'm sort of find it mind-blowing statistics around the number of suspensions of children with ADHD from kindergarten to year two. I mean, suspending children in kindergarten just seems to me incredible um, at, at any stage. So, so what do you think is needed there? Is it is it that we need better training for teachers earlier on in their own training pathways? Is it is it more broad than that in terms of the shift in our recognition understanding that what you were talking about earlier about recognizing strengths and the individuality of the child what what, what do you think needs to change that, that's right so this is going to be an answer all of the above it's, it's <laughs> a when a child um, is suspended from education and uh, i think we need to look at it from all of those perspectives uh, adh this is an area that adhd australia has been very strongly committed to. Uh -huh. And this is a national consumer organization that's looking to advocate uh, and, and have support through the society for 
uh, accommodation for young people and adults with uh, ADHD. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, again, most recently, uh, ADHD Australia supported uh, an organisation of parents called PAAA, and they did a survey in New South Wales uh, schools of mm -hmm. uh, what's actually happening for those with ADHD. Mm -hmm. and, and it was definitely concerning in the extreme. Mm -hmm. How the failure at the moment to accommodate and to support young people with ADHD within our system without reaching to a punitive approach. Mm -hmm. And so this is what we're saying right throughout today's podcast is mm -hmm. we need to understand and accommodate. You, you don't change by punishment. You change by education and by uh, developing strategies to improve efficiency mm. of how the brain is working and we need to be able to find a way of moving more towards that from clearly what PAAA has shown us where we are uh, today and education of teachers as well as families and and skilling of young people are definitely at the forefront of where we need to go. Mm. And it strikes me that that would just be, you know, thinking about broader, you know, child development, that that would, you know, just be a good way to be interacting with kids in general, whether or not they have ADHD and or possibly other learning issues. I mean, I can think of my own clients who do have ADHD and, and, and when they've been in an environment where it, almost in one sense there's expectations for them have been raised or they've been inspired to do better, um, and given the support to progress, they've actually thrived. Um, and as, as I suppose I'm suggesting for children in general, I think when you encourage them, when you see positive in them and when you expect in a way more of them, they tend to rise to the occasion than if you sort of cast them aside or write them off as being a challenge that's that sort of all hope is lost. So, um, no, I think your, your suggestion uh, is... is resonates very strongly with my own anecdotal, I, I suppose, experience clinically. Yes, a, a lovely study. I think there are definitely universal strategies to help those with ADHD and any of the young people struggling in a classroom mm. environment. But a lovely study from the 1950s. So what you don't uh, learn from history, you, you repeat. And what, it, what the psychologists who came into the classroom had a look at is the performance of young people and they wanted to see whether that correlated with the IQ, with the intelligence of the students. Yes. And they found it wasn't, it, it, there was a trend, but it wasn't nearly as strong as the um, discrimination of performance on what the teacher thought about the student. Yes. And so what the, the, the teacher's view and, and how the teacher presented, um, work, interacted with the student was the most important discriminator of how that student did in that classroom rather than just IQ, and I think that's such an important lesson going forward. Yes, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more, um, absolutely. So in terms of going forward and maybe speaking um, from, about you more personally and your work that you have done um, over the years to be an advocate for people with ADHD through your work and, uh, and, and uh, through the organisations that you belong to and, and, and as you said, sitting on, you know, preparing of guidelines um, in many, many different avenues and aspects. What aspect of your own work, Dr. Conan, in this field would you like people to be most aware of? Um, I, I think um, there's the need to shine light and not make heat. I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think everyone's got their own bias, their own prejudice, um, their own intellect. And I think we would do the best by just challenging uh, each other to produce data 
to, to look at it in a cool way and to look for ways that we can identify how we can strategy, strategize, how we can accommodate uh, people where their brains are not working efficiently. Mm. I love that line, shine light and not make heat. Uh, that's a great summary. And so where to next then? What do you feel most hopeful about in, in, in the next five to 10 years in this field, whether it's research or clinical so practice? Look, thank you. I, I am hopeful. I am hopeful because I see a number of um, small fires uh, being lit uh, over these last couple of years that are going to be able to burn brightly. I see um, through uh, the auspice of the uh, federal government um, um, that there's been funding to develop a professional group uh, around Australia Mm. that brings together uh, all of those involved in uh, ADHD care. And most recently, um, that's been extended to a community group. So there'll be some funding for strategies to bring the community's ideas together. Mm. And I think that combination will enable um, a writing of a, a very big wrong. I, I think it will be able to then the government uh, and policy will be able to be inclusive of people with ADHD and support them in ways which will make a paradigm change rather than at the moment um, them being excluded and discriminated against. Mm, mm. That sounds very hopeful indeed and what a massive shift that would be um, I think in the right direction. Dr Cohn, thank you so much for the vast work you've done in this area and, and also for shedding light today on the needs of people with ADHD, the important issues that you've raised around assessment, around treatment and, and that um, general comment that I think has come through the podcast, you know, as a theme, the need for really looking at individual circumstances and profiles and, and making decisions, sensible decisions based on the individual strengths and weaknesses or challenges of that person and, and, and their functioning. Um, I, I really am very, very grateful for your time. I, I have great respect for you and uh, I'm, I'm very honoured that you've been able to give some time this morning. Thank so thank you very much. Well, I hope you found that interview as informative and helpful as I did. As both a clinician and a parent, I really liked the practical three-step question process that Professor Cohn outlined for families considering treatment options for ADHD. And to review those parent questions again, they were one, is the treatment likely to be helpful? Two, could it cause my child or family any harm? And three, what are the costs to us in terms of time and money? What a great guide and a quick and easy process for parents to consider when they're looking at treatments for their child. I'm going to include links to four excellent sites for ADHD in our show notes. These links will cover resources, information around assessment and treatment guidelines, and some current information about, around this idea of the digital therapeutic approach to ADHD, which is a new look at treatment for ADHD using digital technology. As always, please leave comments in the show notes and a rating. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The Annie Centre podcast was brought to you by Annie Centre Proprietary Limited. Please visit AnnieCentre.com and subscribe to receive the latest updates and digital downloads from Dr. Anne Shalfant.